we see this over and again. I mean, you go to Acts 2, and I think you could safely describe Pentecost as a revival. It, it's a moment where the Spirit of God comes and supernaturally gives them the gift of tongues so that they can speak the Word of God in languages they never learned. But what happens as soon as that is happening and people are saved, they're, they're studying the Apostles' doctrine. So the Word of God is always central. Repentance of sin is always something that you see in what we would call revivals. Welcome to the Scripture and Plain Reason podcast. An engaging podcast where we affirm the authority and the clarity of Scripture. My name is Ryan. And my name is Brian. Welcome back, listeners. It's uh, great to be back with you in back-to-back weeks. This is the first time in a little bit that we've been able to do this. Uh, We're going to follow up on our episode from last week where we talked about the Asbury Revival, and we're just going to get a little bit into what is a revival? What does it mean? What are some of the biblical elements of a revival? And where do we see a revival taking place in the Bible? So before we go there, Brian, what's going on with you? Any, uh, Any updates for our listeners? Yeah, just another update. Uh, I want to thank all the listeners that have shown care, concern, text messages, emails, and prayers, especially for my daughter. Two days ago, she uh, walked over to my office and uh, said, Dad, I, I'm starting to feel better. Praise so, God. amen. And went to a movie with me last night to see The Jesus Revolution. We'll talk about maybe in a couple episodes. And still recovering from... Uh, some of the infections that she has, so she's still very tired, but walking again and talking about running. So all these things are thrilling to us. And again, I just want to thank all the listeners that prayed and really means a lot. We believe these progress is only because our Lord has been gracious and uh, he's healing her. So thank you. Praise God. Really encouraged to hear that. And um, we'll continue to pray that this is more stable uh, moving forward. I know this specific issue that Carissa deals with is is one that can pop up from time to time. So just ensuring that we continue to pray for her for times when this when something like this happens again, that she's able to get the appropriate help and support from her doctors and get back to healing. Thank you, Ryan. Now you have I think your 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 son Matthew is going to be um, starring in a, a play here this weekend, right? Yeah, I don't know about starring, but you're right. He is in a play. He's and, participating. Uh, he is. And he's got a pretty decent-sized uh, part, and he's super excited. We're going to that tonight. We're recording here on Thursday. And then he's got another one tomorrow night as well. It's obviously the same play, but they just do it two different nights. And his play director has pushed this cast really, really hard over the course of the past few weeks. Wow. I know he didn't get home last night until about 1030 and you know they start practice at like four right after school and there was one day i think monday of this week where they allowed the kids to miss all day of school and they literally spent the entire day practicing for the play so they really take this seriously and i know he's tired but he's excited to to see this thing unfold and i'm excited to see how it shakes out super and matthew is very talented and uh He's a good speaker, and he is a great actor, too, so I know he's going to do great. I, yeah. I do want to say one other thing just before we get started on our, our episode today is uh, the rumors are back. I'm sure you're aware 
that uh, Tom Brady may shorten his retirement on the second time. And the rumors all point, all point to Miami. I did not see any of those rumors, by the way, but that's just because I haven't been paying a whole lot of attention. I, I thought he signed a big deal with one of the networks. Well, he did, but that was prior to his first retirement and taking it back. Oh, and okay. so he could do it again. I mean, after all, his announcement for retiring this time was done on Instagram while he's sitting by the beach contemplating, <laughs> and one morning he just shares it. So I imagine if something is so given such little thought and so spontaneous that it can be taken back as easily. And um, I actually want to challenge you on that, Ryan. I, I'm not sure that it's you're overlooking these rumors. I think you actually have a a real attitude about the possibility <laughs> of Tom Brady coming to Miami. So anything that even hints of that, you probably just keep moving. I said it before on this podcast. I do not want to see Tom Brady as the quarterback of the Miami Dolphins, Super Bowl or not. Um, and after a Super Bowl win, maybe I'd have a different perspective. But I don't know. It's just been a brutal 20-plus years in our division facing him, and I don't want to see him playing for my team. That's just brutal. Yeah. Well, we'll keep this update going, but if if this were to actually happen, I can't even imagine what some of our openings will be like. Uh, I'm still a Tom Brady fan, and if he were playing for your team, I just don't even know how we would be able to react. Yeah, especially when we play the Patriots twice a year. So who are you rooting for? Obviously, you're rooting for the Patriots, but there's just a little bit of uh, Tom Brady fandom there that would make it hard for you. Well, Brady always had a hard time, as well as the entire Patriots team, winning in Miami. So I could see him you know, trying to deal with that uh, difficulty by wearing a you know, a teal green Miami shirt. I don't know if you call it teal green. What would you call that? Aqua or teal? Uh, what, what's the aqua, color? Aqua and orange are the two Miami colors. Okay. All right. And, well, enough with that. Well, yeah. One, one last point. You're right in that Tom Brady lost a lot to the Dolphins. In fact, there is no other team in the NFL that Tom Brady lost to more than the Miami Dolphins. So I'll just leave you with that point. <laughs> That's a great place to unhinge. All right. Well, let's start, Brian. We're going to talk about revival and revivalism again. And I, I want to set the tone with one quick question for you. Can you just share the difference in general terms between revival and revivalism? Absolutely. I'll take a stab at it. Neither one of the words are really Bible words. We see the word not used as a noun like revival um, we see the word used in like Psalm 85, um, wilt thou not revive us again, according to the King James, which led to songs like revive us again. But the word is actually not a biblical word. But what is being referred to when we use the word revive is to bring back to life, to uh, bring back from almost death that which is dying. So typically when we talk about revival, we are talking about some supernatural movement of God where he works in the hearts of his people and restores to them the joy of their salvation, restores to them a understanding of who God is, who they are, repentance, that kind of thing. Uh, about always when we add ism to a word, it's a bad word. So when we talk about revivalism, I believe that category, and there was a book written by Ian Murray years ago called Revival and Revivalism. Excellent book. 
I think it's out of print now, so you have to buy used copies. But the, the book is really comparing those two. One, a supernatural work of God. Revivalism, however, really speaks to this idea that if I put all the pieces together or if I put all of the elements to the recipe together, Ryan, um, out comes a revival. So um, it's actually spoken of in terms of revival is not a supernatural work of God. It's something you can actually um, manipulate and put together the right methods and measures and outcomes of revival. So I think the big difference is revival, when we speak about revival, we're saying this is something supernatural that God has done. And he has visited his people in a special way. He always is with his people, but he has uniquely or perhaps um, periodically um, there's a season of the fear of the Lord and, and other elements that we see biblically and historically, whereas revivalism is you could put it on the calendar. And if you can do the right things and the right measures and create the right atmosphere, outcomes a revival. So one's man centered. And I would argue that one's God centered. Yeah, that's great. Very helpful. So, Brian, maybe what we can do is when you think about uh, revival in biblical form and where it happened in the Bible, I'd like to just do a quick flyover of where the first revival was recorded in the Bible. And then, by the way, this is coming directly from you as part of a a message you shared with the deacons and the elders in, in one of the meetings. So really appreciate that. And I took a lot of notes, so I'm going to try to do this flyover. And then I'm going to ask you to go a little bit deeper on some of the elements of of the revival from the Bible. That'd be great if you could share maybe a biblical overview of what we see, maybe the first revival that's recorded in the second Kings. I think it's also recorded some in, in, in second Chronicles, but yeah, that'd be helpful just for us to start there at that is the place to start, right? I mean, this is scripture and plain reason. Yeah. And you have to go back to 640 BC and there was some good years with King Hezekiah, but after King Hezekiah, there was a number of kings that just really did a poor job of being a king, and in some cases were were evil kings. And so the country of Judah really was not doing so hot and, and looked bleak at the time. And there really wasn't a whole lot to be excited about in the country of Judah, but God did something at that point in time, and he breathed new life into his people. And I, I want to highlight the four core elements of what you see from Second Kings in this uh, revival within the Bible. And uh, we'll start with the fact that whenever a revival occurs, the mo- first and most important mark is that there is a rediscovery of God's word. And so understanding God's word and, and bringing it back to life effectively within God's people. In addition, there's this newfound or renewed fear of God. That's the the second mark. The third mark is the return to confession. So return to repenting of your sins and asking God for his forgiveness. And then the fourth mark is a renewed spiritual commitment and accountability to God and to studying God's word. I guess, Brian, can you go maybe go a little bit deeper on either the history or those four elements, or by all means, please correct me if I, I misstated anything. 
Yeah, I mean, that biblical uh, narrative uh, describing, I mean, we can look at Hezekiah and, and, and the revival with Hezekiah. We can see the revival with Josiah. And um, in both situations, there's an acknowledgement of God's word. I mean, Josiah's situation, right, they didn't have the Bible for for a long time. And it was almost like it got discovered in the basement. And so Josiah, he has the word of God read. And as it's read publicly, he begins to rip his clothes, which was a sign of remorse and repentance. And uh, we see this over and again. I mean, you go to Acts 2, and I think you could safely describe Pentecost as a revival. It, it's a moment where Spirit of God comes and supernaturally gives them the gift of tongues so that they can speak the Word of God in languages they'd never learned. But what happens as soon as that is happening and people are saved, they're, they're studying the apostles' doctrine. So the Word of God is always central. Repentance of sin is always something that you see in what we would call revivals. I, I love that, that, that fourth point you, you mentioned about accountability. There seems to be, let's keep it right. Uh, we don't want to go back to the place we were at. And, and so, so I would just say these are elements that we would generally say if we're trying to see a revival, even though the word's not used, if we're, if we're trying to see God restoring his people, the word of God's always central. People are repenting of sins. There's this, you know, almost palatable fear of God that um, not in a fear of, of trepidation in the sense that, you know, he, he's going to do something vengeful that isn't just, but but a healthy fear of God. And, and then also the accountability, let's keep it right. I, I think these are things that uh, when we're trying to uh, assess something that is called a supernatural work of God, a revival, an outpouring, an awaking, we often have to look back at these. Because now we're looking back at, at Josiah, we're looking back at Hezekiah, and we're saying, these are the marks we saw. Um, I think we need to do the same thing. And so, no, I, I think those are great little uh, boxes, a, a kind of a sieve to say, hey, I don't want to throw cold water on anything. But when I hear about a movement of God or something that's called the movement of God, are, are these characteristics what we're primarily seeing, or is it something different than what we see in scriptures? And I think if that's the case, we have reason to be concerned, skeptical, or if it's consistent uh, with these characteristics. I think those are moments where we go, this seems to have the marks of a true movement of God. So I was just trying to think of this other example, and I could be way off here on the the place in the Old Testament where this shows up. But is it true that when Ezra pulled out the scrolls and shared what was in the scrolls, wasn't there like this massive repentance and realization that, oh, what have we been doing for so long? Would that be a fair example? I, I think that's another example of what we would categorize as a revival. I mean, Nehemiah comes back after the Babylonian captivity. Cyrus, uh, according to Jeremiah's prophecy, he, he's told to come back. Um, the walls rebuilt in, what, 52 days Mm -hmm. And instead of there being a golden shovel moment where Nehemiah is praised and they have a parade for him, Ezra comes up to the wooden pulpit and he begins to read the law of the Lord. And we're told he read the law of the Lord distinctly and he gave the sense. And the elders were spread out throughout the congregation. I think that passage in Nehemiah 8 is probably the first apologetic for junior churches on Sunday mornings because it says the men and women and all those who could understand stayed. 
So I'm assuming that the ones who couldn't understand were sent to junior church. Um, they were sent somewhere. I don't know where they yeah. were sent, but, but only those who could understand. And we're also told that the elders spread themselves throughout the congregation, Ryan, and they gave the sense to what Ezra was reading. Now, some commentators say they were simply interpreting it because um, so many of them coming back from the Babylonian captivity couldn't speak Hebrew, and so they needed to translate it. I don't think it was simple translation. Most Bible scholars believe that it was more than just translation. It was it was interpretation. So they were basically, if you can imagine on a Sunday morning when I'm preaching, if our elders spread out through the congregation, and if they saw a blank stare with somebody sitting in the pew, they were like, you know, you don't get that, do you, Ryan? Let me yeah. let me explain that a little better for you. Yeah. Um, so that happened, and he read from the law of the Lord from morning to afternoon. So hours. And we're told that they were standing during the reading of this. But there was weeping, and they began to repent. Well, now Ezra stopped them because he said, absolutely not. This is the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. It was a a feast that reminded them of when they were in the wilderness and they had these little shanties and God took care of them. Their clothes didn't get old. Their shoes didn't wear out. So it was supposed to be a time of rejoicing, but they were weeping. But you're exactly right. This is what happens when the law of the Lord, the word of God has not been read and people are being revived. They're hearing the word of God. And what is their response? Repentance. So Absolutely. I think that's another good place to go to in the scriptures. Well, I know, Brian, we have a, a number of really awesome episodes coming up. We uh, just kind of worked on the schedule and uh, you had sent me a first cut of that. And I know one of or a few of those episodes is around hard questions. We we kind of did that with a little bit of a Q&A. And we asked that one question of what are some challenges that new Christians will face in marriage. And, you know, I can't wait to talk about the follow-up to that, which is what are some of the joys that Mm. Christians will experience in marriage? So looking forward to that follow-up question, as well as some additional hard questions that we're going to talk about. Can you maybe just share a little bit about what's coming up maybe more in the near future? You mentioned Jesus Revolution in that movie that you watched with Carissa last night. I think we're going to talk a little bit about that in either the next episode or in a couple episodes. Yeah, I'm thinking that I'd like to give a little review of revivals or awakenings that we've had um, in the conclusion of this episode. And then hopefully next episode, um, I want to talk about the movie Jesus Revolution. That movement called the Jesus Movement or the Jesus People. And at the end of that movie last night, and as a teaser, certainly not as a spoiler, as a teaser, it was a very well done movie. Um, I really enjoyed it. it. It seems to be that when Hollywood does the filmmaking and Christians give the, the script and they talk about the historical um, events so that Hollywood is doing the, the cinema and not Christians, whereas some of these Christian uh, flicks have been the opposite. The the Christians do the filmmaking, and Hollywood gives them a little advice, and it it always seems to end up with, wow, that was kind of a low-budget film. This Mm -hmm. one comes across as, wow, the the professionals made this movie, the actors are incredible, but it seems to be historically accurate. Uh, So, um, yeah, I want us to break that down and kind of say, okay, so what happened there? 
was that the greatest revival in American history as that was the ending of the movie? They said that this was, um, according to historians, the greatest revival that's ever happened in America. Or, or are there some other revivals that, that would um, be more in line with what you just described from the Bible? So when you think about revivals, when you think about awakenings, and you think about the American history, what were they in America? Were they revivals? Were they awakenings? Can you touch on that a little bit more? Yeah, the first one that's, that's almost universally called the First Great Awakening um, started basically in 1734 when Jonathan Edwards, who had taken over for his grandfather in um, Hampton, Massachusetts, he was the pastor of a small church there. And in fact, when I run the Hartford Marathon every year, Ryan, I run right by Jonathan Edwards' birthplace, his home. And they, cool. they have a little, uh, yeah, they have a little plaque there. It's pretty cool. But anyway, he was preaching a two-part sermon on justification by faith alone. And the response was extraordinary. Um, people began to fill the church. They began to repent. People were converted all down the Connecticut River Valley. This started to spread. So that was kind of like for the beginning of the First Great Awakening. Um, months followed in 1734, and George Whitfield was converted. He was, of course, friends with John and Charles Wesley, who started Methodism. And in 1739, Whitfield actually came to the United States, and he and Edwards were friends. Uh, Whitfield was much more of a popular theatrical preacher. He was a big celebrity. When he came to preach in Philadelphia, for instance, they said that there was upwards to 40,000 people that would come wow. and hear him preach. Um, Benjamin Franklin, who never believed the gospel that we know of, loved to hear Whitfield preach. Um, he talked about it a lot. But anyway, Whitfield was used of the Lord along with Jonathan Edwards, and this really spread. And even John Wesley and Charles Wesley were used of the Lord in the First Great Awakening. Thousands of people were saved. This primarily happened in New England, uh, but it did spread across the United States and into the colonies. But this led, basically, it started to end um, about the time of the American Revolution, about the time of the beginning of, of our country. And that's what we refer to as the First Great Awakening. And some characteristics of it, along with what you just described in the Bible, Ryan, were the sovereignty of God. And the one who started the revival was the supernatural, surprising work of the Lord. And it wasn't really focused on anybody creating it because, you know, the truth of the matter is Edwards was, my understanding was, was kind of a boring preacher. He was not intriguing, engaging like Whitfield was. Um, but God used that in a profound way. But if you speed up to what is referred to as the second great awakening, it actually, it was completely different. There were these things originally in England called um, communion services, and they're not like just having Lord's table. They, they would start on a Thursday, and they would start with a time of praying. Then on Friday would be a time of fasting. On sun, Saturday, there'd be a time of preaching. And then it would end with a time of communion, celebrating Lord's table. And these were pretty popular in Scotland, England. They came here, and they actually led and became what was called the original camp meetings. And you mentioned these tent meeting revivals that you are familiar with. Mm -hmm. Well, this kind of spread out West. And instead of focusing on communion, 
they started focusing on a lot of emotionalism. Uh, one of the most famous one was called the Cane Ridge Revival tent meeting in Kentucky, um, where there was upwards to 20,000 people who attended that. But a lot of strange things started happening. Uh, people being slain in the spirit. A lot of spectacular gifts were experienced. Um, they weren't singing the songs of the First Great Awakening, which were from Isaac Watts and Charles and John Wesley. But they were songs that were meant to kind of uh, build up emotions. And along comes a guy named uh, Charles Finney. And Charles Finney is known as kind of coining the term the burned over district in western New York. And this was an area where they kept having revivals and revivals. And, and Finney was famous for saying, you can plan a revival. There's nothing supernatural about a revival. You can actually put the methods or the measures to practice, and you can create a crisis and create a revival. So they had things like the the anxious bench. If you were feeling like, hey, I'm starting to feel some kind of conviction, you would come sit on the front row, and it was called the anxious bench um, or the mourner's bench. This was a place where you would we would be, and then later on you would go into an inquiry room, and uh, that's where you would be led to uh, say the sinner's prayer. That led to the sawdust trail that you might remember and Billy Sunday and D.L. Moody and some of these more evangelistic campaigns. All that to say, that led up to um, some of the more popular recent revivals that we were going to speak about in the next episode in the 1970s, which would be the, the Jesus Revolution or the Jesus Movement. But here's what I want to conclude with. There was a big distinction between the First Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening. The First Great Awakening focused on more of a Calvinistic, uh, reform view of God and his sovereignty and salvation, whereas the revivalism of the Second Great Awakening focused primarily on more our Arminian point of view, um, man's free will, and a focus on putting the measures or the methods to practice and you could create a revival. You didn't need any supernatural work of God. This could be something that could be almost pulled out of a box, follow the instructions, and woof, here comes a revival. So revival versus revivalism, I think you could contrast the first great awakening with the so-called second great awakening, which led to a lot of the revivals after that uh, being more man-centered than God-centered. That's great, and I think... I love the fact that we were able to go through a little bit of the biblical history on revivals and overall awakenings, as well as some of our own country's historical timelines as it relates to revivals and awakenings. So appreciate that background. So we've given you a preview of what's to come. I think this is a, a fantastic place to wrap. My name is Ryan. And my name is Brian. Join us next time for more scripture and plain reason. God's word is true and God's word is clear.